The following content contains adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual violence, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. As far as my father, you know, I was always just going to the jail, but he made sure it was a happy experience, a a loving experience. Mm. So he was doing the best he could to be a father from the situation he was in, because if it's not for mothers and grandmothers in these situations, a lot of relationships are torn apart between the kid and their father. I could not really know my father Mm -hmm. if it wasn't for um, my mother not making sure my father was in my life. Abolition is healing, accountability, transformation, community, constructive justice, resources. Abolition's hot. Creating systems that do not perpetuate harm. It's a belief in a better world. This is Abolition X. What's the big old deal, y'all? This is Abolition X, where we bring abolition to the culture. I'm Richie Reseda. I'm Vic Mensa. And I'm Indigo Mateo. Today, we're talking about family. Family, a group of people related through blood, adoption, or community. A lot of people don't think about how the prison system affects families, how it creates and profits from generations of trauma, poverty, and incarceration. In today's episode, we'll talk to a couple of the families caught in the eye of that storm. We talked to Jackie, an incarcerated mom whose relationship with the system started with her elders being criminalized when she was a child. And we'll play our interview with Larry Hoover Jr. We caught up with him the day after Kanye and Drake threw a concert to free his father, legendary Chicago gang leader turned peace advocate Larry Hoover, who's been in prison for 50 years. It's interesting because this conversation will allow us to speak to the origin of many of these street organizations, which was as community-focused groups, Mm -hmm. you know, focused on protection. People don't really Mm -hmm. know the history of organizations like the Gangster Disciples or the Black Peace Stones and how, you know, in the 50s and early 60s that our communities were being ran up in by white gangs Mm -hmm. in Chicago from, you know, Bridgeport and Irish gangs and Polish gangs that were attacking kids and that, you know, these organizations, many of them began. As defense. Yeah, as self-defense mm-hmm. organizations and community empowerment. Ooh, and I just, I just feel like I have to say, like, the police as a gang. Mm-hmm. Literally and figuratively. You know what I'm saying? In mm-hmm. Chicago, there was actually a group of police that banded together and created a gang called the Insane Fish. So Chicago has a particularity of the gang culture where some sets will be the insane gangster disciples. Some sets will be the insane mm. Latin disciples or renegade, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so this group of cops started a gang called the Insane Fish. They was robbing drug dealers, re-rocking the dope, as they do, mm-hmm. you know, selling guns, selling drugs with impunity. So I got to ask, though, like, we're talking about gangs. What does that have to do with family? Many of the people who join gangs do so to have a sense of family. That's true. You know, coming from communities where families have been disjointed, much of which is a product of incarceration. A lot of people join a gang to feel a familial bond, to feel a part of something. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's exactly what it is. Like, people need that sense of belonging. People need that sense of, like, who's around me? Who are my resources? Who can I, like, you know, tap to and and just be loved and love? That That's what family is. Like, I think we're getting away from kind of this biological family idea and going into, as a society, like, who's our chosen family, too, you know? Yo, it's wild this comes up in this conversation because I lived with my homies. Like when I got kicked out of the house, I lived with my best friends and my best friend got shot when we were 17. Mm. And I remember coming home one day and the door was just open and I was like, what the fuck? So I walked in and there was hella cops in there. And you know, I, I tried to get out hella fast Skirt. thinking we getting raided or something. Yeah. And um, they're like, nah, 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 stay in here. And they called me by my, my full government name and they put me in handcuffs and sat me down like they were going to ask me questions. I said, no, I have a question for you. Like, why are you here? And they said, well, your brother. Who was actually your friend. Who was my best friend. But, you know, he is my brother. But but to them, they don't understand. You know, they just assume everybody's blood related. Um, your brother got shot. And I said, exactly. So why am I in handcuffs? And they said, well, we suspect that he was shot for being a gang member. And now you all are suspected as gang members. Mm. So we were literally being criminalized for being victims of a crime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you're a chosen family. Yeah. Wow. You know, they see our chosen families as inherently criminal. Yep. What's wild is we got kicked out of the valley. Hmm. The, the police told us we were not allowed to live in the valley where we were from. We had to move all the way to Long Beach, which is what? 50 miles away. I got kicked out of the valley at 17 because my best friend got shot. Wow. Under that gang injunction shit. And y'all can go back to the tech episode to learn what a gang injunction is. Yeah, and what's important to understand is that coming from an African and indigenous perspective, family is community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This individualistic, every man for himself must move out when you're 18 and blaze your own path without your community and your family. That's a European mindset. That's that white shit. In you know, in the slum where my family lives, the village where my family lives in Ghana, when I go home, it's guys that went to school with my father. Now they're, you know, 76 years old. They're like, your father was my brother, so I am your father. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? You are my son. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Beautiful. And that's our intrinsic understanding of family. So when you mm-hmm. look at the African planted into America, our literal family structures, not just nuclear, but also communal are being chopped and chiseled away by mass incarceration, you know what I'm saying? And by medication, you know what I'm saying? And pumping of crack and heroin, you know what I mean? It's like those people that would be considered our uncles and aunts, you know what I mean? Are are strung out, are locked up, are mortal enemies, you know what I'm saying? All because they're being manipulated by this carceral state. The system really creates incarceration by ravaging generations of our family. And that's what a lot of people don't talk about that or think about that. Like we talk about the school to prison pipeline, but we don't talk about the visiting room to prison pipeline. Mm. Like kids who grow up going to visiting rooms are more likely to get locked up. Yeah, 100%. You know, kids who grow up having to press five to talk to their parent through the phone are literally like statistics show they're more likely to get locked up when they grow up because, yo, you're like y'all are talking about. We come from structures where a lot of us grow up in homes with multiple generations, with living with our grandmothers and stuff like that. When you start pulling people out of the communities and putting people into perpetual 
poverty, that is going to fuck up the next generation. 100%. Like, I got homies who got out of prison who went in in their 20s, got out in their 50s, got out in their 60s. But they're supposed to retire. Like, how are they supposed to contribute to their children's lives? Now their kids are out in the streets, you know, all in the mix. And the cycle continues. That's why I think it's very beautiful, revolutionary, and transformative that on this show, we're able to welcome both Larry Hoover Jr. and Dr. Amina Matthews. Larry Hoover Jr. being the son of Larry Hoover, the founder of the Gangster Disciples, and Dr. Amina Matthews being the daughter of Jeff Fort, founder of the Black Peace Stones, which are hmm. two of the largest street organizations in the world, but primarily and specifically Chicago, you know? And these are two organizations that at points in time have been diametrically opposed to each other and been engaged in war after war, but at the end of the day are comprised of the exact same tribe, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. to have their two lineages come together to show the ways that they've both been manipulated. Mm, right. Manipulated by white supremacy. Yeah, word. Manipulated by scarcity. Um, I love that we're taking this concept of family and like zooming it out as abolitionists do and say, okay, this is tribe. This is community. That's what we're talking about. And Bell Hooks references another author in her book, All About Love. She talks about a book that's written by M. Scott Peck, in and through community lies the salvation of the world. Peck defines community as the coming together of a group of individuals who have learned how to communicate honestly with each other, whose relationships go deeper than their masks of composure, and who have developed some significant commitment to rejoice together, mourn together, and to delight in each other and make each other's conditions our own. But I think that that's important about what we're talking about because it's this piece right here for me. It's be willing to make others' conditions our own. And it makes me think about prison. It makes me think about, like, how many of us are willing to go sit in a cell, to get, like, shitty meals every day, like, to, to have to constantly be told what to wear, how to refer to yourself, how to refer to other people. Like, those are conditions that I myself would not want to be in in any way, shape, or form, mm. even if I was pushed to do something deeply outside of my morals. But you are forced to be in those conditions by yeah. having a husband who's in prison, right? Yeah. Like, and you're not alone in that. Um, there's this report came out while I was in prison called Who Pays mm -hmm. um, that talked about how most of the people who visit people in prison are women. Most of the people who hold down households when people get incarcerated are women. Even in women's prisons, most of the people who are coming in and visiting are women. And the different aspects of the punishment industry, these different private companies that are sucking the life out of our communities, whether it be the telephone companies, Securus, Global Telling, yeah, whether it be curious. the packaging, yeah, the, the package companies, yep. they make their bread off of women. Yeah. There's a report that says one in four women in the United States have an incarcerated loved one and one in two black women in the United States have an incarcerated loved one. That's right. And that is keeping families in poverty so that these companies can get rich. Yeah. Another stat said that two years of my life will be shaved off because I have a loved one in prison. Yeah. That shit literally affects, it gets in our bodies and like yeah. those drives. And honestly, that's the shit that kind of scared me because when, when things are in your family, like people always say it's close to home. Mm. It's too close to home. So it's like, that's why I say like we have to continue to remember the conditions that people are living in and how like 
I don't ever want to be in that space. And so I have to take up this fight. Like an injustice to one person is an injustice everywhere. Like I, I really believe that. So it's like even being caught up in the in the mess of it and, and wanting to just be there for my husband and sometimes only having the capacity to be there for him. It's a trick. It's a ploy. It's like a tool of the oppressor to be like, let's just tire these motherfuckers out. Like pretty much wring them dry of all the, the money, resources that they have, the energy that they have so that people can truly be forgotten and, and, and for there to be like a new sense of normal. When I'm just like, I rebuke that shit. I am tired, but that's why I'm asking people to help because it's not fair that I'm subjected to that type of treatment. It's not fair that my husband's in that type of treatment. It's just like... We need help. We need more abolitionists, like, in order to protect families. I'm glad we're talking to Larry and to Jackie today because I think it's really important that folks hear from these families. A lot of people don't think about what the prison system does to families. They don't think about how the guards treat families like shit. Right. When I was in prison, the guards used to call the families inmate lovers. Oh, the inmate lovers are here. Let the inmate lovers into the visiting room. And be treated as second-class citizens. So nasty. I mean, women are sexually harassed by the guards at the gate trying to get into the visits. Like, I know I've got to tell you, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, turn around, let me see your butt or your pants too tight. Like, just grow. I've seen them do it to babies, 13-year-old girls. Like, it, it's just, it's really gross, terrible, disgusting treatment that families face every day that ends up leading to more trauma, more poverty, and then, of course, more incarceration. Yeah, I mean, in the visiting room, I remember seeing, like, this dad had this, like, kid on his shoulders. And the police was like, nah, nah, you can't do that. Like, that's excessive touching. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is this this man's child. Yeah. Incarceration is, like, acid that corrodes families. And I, I think it comes from every side. Like, financially, got to pay to get on the phone. Got to pay to go to the visit. Got to leave other family members behind because they can't go into the visit for whatever reasons. Got to travel. Got to travel. And I think the biggest thing that I've heard from incarcerated people is that it's the hardest to tell their family how they're actually doing in prison. Mm. Like, it is the hardest to, like, to share that burden because so much of the burden is already, like, so shared. Like, and and that's, to me, that's real family. It's like, you down, I'm down. So how are we going to get free? Mm -hmm. That's why when I hear people who have, like, has, like like loved ones in prison, they'll sometimes say like, we were down. Remember when we got out of prison? And it's like, yo, that shit is real. That shit is real. Like I would never correct my loved ones when they would say like, yeah, that was when we were still down. Like, hell yeah, we were down, bad and out. Like my whole family, my whole community was affected by that shit. Yeah, that's how 88 feels too. So I'm happy we got the guests we got today. Let's get into it. Right. When we get back, We'll talk to Jackie, an incarcerated mother. Stay with us. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, Say or dial five now. I hate that voice. I'm sick of that voice. (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) What's up, everybody? We are on with Jackie. She's a mom who has been incarcerated and has been oppressed by the system in multiple ways 
for years and we're really blessed to have her. Thank you so much for calling in, Jackie. You're welcome. I'm excited. Yes, Jackie. I am like raw in my emotions today because the system has got me fucked up in so many multiple, multiple, multiple ways and has so many of us so fucked up. So I'm just sitting with so much gratitude for you because again, just being a family member of someone who's incarcerated, it's vulnerable and being incarcerated itself is vulnerable as fuck. So thank you for like sharing your experience with us and, and like being here today with us. And I know it's going to serve some healing energy for me. Ashe. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Same. I feel the same. Trust me. So fam, let's just dive in. Like, could you tell us a little bit about how you grew up? Okay. Um, so first, I wanted to say that these questions really got me because I'm kind of should be released soon. And I haven't thought about certain things that I was asked until now. It was just per- a per- perfect time, you know? Yeah. And I thought about my childhood and, and having children now is different because the last time that I was in prison, I didn't have children. Mm. So this time it's a different raw emotion being incarcerated as a mother. And so growing up, I grew up with my mom and it was different because she was a immigrant. So it's just a different culture, you know? And it was just me, my brother, and my mom. And my dad left when I was five. He got deported. So mm-hmm. it was just very, very different than how I am with my children. I guess I'm what well, would be considered first generation. But it, it, at first, I wasn't proud of it because mm-hmm. I was I grew up incarcerated. So first generation and being incarcerated the whole time, it's like you're not proud of it. Then when I started graduating and doing things, being incarcerated, I'm very proud of who I am, you know? Even if I did it in here. You said that your dad was deported at five. I was five, yeah. What do you remember from that experience, if you don't mind sharing? So, um, a lot of Hispanics will understand that being Mexican and Salvadorian, because mm. I have half Salvadorian in me, okay, Salvi. it's very hard, right? I got 25. Yeah, I'm half Salvi. <laughs> I'm half Salvi. So, right. So, it, it's different because the culture of Mexicans and Salvadorians were brought up to be kind of enemies, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. So, they don't like each other. So, it was very hard to see my father beat my mom up all the time and my mom being from Mexico and being French from Mexico, she thought that that was okay because she had us kids and she tried not to leave him, right? So he got a case for beating up his other woman that he had and they deported him. So I remember him being very nice to me, but I remember him very being very raw and ugly with my mother. Mm. And I grew up thinking that that was okay. And then I became him, you know? Wow, that's interesting. My mom, yeah. my, my grandpa, um, who's Hondureño, he... My mom, my mom always says that about him, where, like, he was a good father, but he was a bad husband. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And that's the culture they grew up in, you know? Yeah. So how did yeah. police and incarceration affect your family as a kid? What are your earliest memories with those systems? I always thought that cops were, like, something to fear. Mm-hmm. They would come and separate everybody. And you would think, you know, cops are coming, so that means someone's going to leave. Mm. It became more of, like, they say that we're brought up with, like, insecurities and issues of being separated or, like, taken or, like, um, you would call it something like um, abandonment issues. You're little, you're a little sec- two-year-old, three-year-old, and guess what? Your uncle got taken, your mom got taken, your father got taken, someone got taken, and that's, I feel, in my life, that's where mm. it started. And then I started feeling like I'm abandoned, but guess what? They took them, and my next step is I'm going to get incarcerated too, you know? And then it ends up happening. Yeah. Yeah. The first time you got locked up, you were 12? I was 12, yeah. Oof. 
Just the powerlessness that you already talked about right now of like people getting taken. What does that do to a child to, to hear that someone older right. than you who you trust and you feel like is protecting you got taken right. for a reason that you don't even understand or know right. that could be avoided, right? With different resources and the powerlessness that's there. It kind of got me in tears right now because I feel like it's, it's what I ended up manifesting for myself, like mm. domestic violence. And like my kids got taken from me, you know, and I got locked up because we were fighting and mm. physically fighting. Right. And then since the cops passed by while we're physically fighting, they take both of us in and we both get a domestic violence case. My mm. kids are right there. Where do they go? Yeah. And so it was kind of different for me, but it, it's like that I did the same thing to them. You know, and mm-hmm. it's something that I'm learning to heal from and, and I blame myself for a long time. And now I'm like, well, I need to stop blaming myself and know where it's coming from and not do it again. Mm. That forgiving yourself, because like you said, like that that cycle, you feel like it's kind of spilling over and recreating itself now for your kids, for you. Right. Damn, like how how do you kind of like separate your feelings of like, yes, this is what I'm accountable for, but also like as a mother in the system and as a a child even growing up with the system, it's like you were also like born into, you know, a situation and... and The same thing. Exactly. For me, I think coming back right now, I never thought I'd get incarcerated again, especially because I created a life and started activism for my friends that are in here. I never thought that I'd come back, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I built a community out there that now it's a a big sisterhood, you know? And Mm -hmm. I just coming back, my pride got taken for me and it's like it's a good thing though you know I got stripped and I had to sit down and forgive myself and I had to Mm -hmm. see all these things of like well how did my kids get taken from me how did I what was I feeling right and I realized that as much as it is my fault for the situation because I was a violent person when it came to my relationship and like most of me felt like aside from blaming myself I felt like okay I didn't deserve for my kids getting taken because I was trying to protect them. Mm-hmm. Like, so we got in an altercation. Like, was I deserving of getting my kids taken? No, I was not. Mm-hmm. But it's not fair because the system does not see it that way. They saw as as two people that were assaulting each other and they have to both get locked up for domestic violence. And they did not care about the whole story. And I had to learn to tell myself, well, I'm not wrong. I was protecting my children no matter what the system says because... I'm the only one that's going to protect them as best as I can. And I do not feel that I was wrong for that. Mm-hmm. And I just have to do better as a woman and as a mother. What does family time with your kids look like? Well, right now, it's a trip because like, I have to parent them by phone. So <laughs> parenting by phone is really interesting. But um, they fight for the phone. I'm grateful that they love me and um, because my mom keeps me, now that my mom's back in my life, which I'm very grateful for, she keeps me alive in them and she talks about me and it's helping us heal Mm -hmm. as mother and daughter. My daughter was taken when she was three months. My middle one was a year and my third one that was older was two. Now they're six, five, and four. And my four-year-old daughter hogs the phone from the boys. Um, It's pretty amazing (laughs) because they want to talk. Yeah, it's amazing. They want to talk to me about their school day. Um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I feel like I'm kind of more in tune with their feelings and what they do. So I'm kind of grateful. How does the system treat your kids? That's really deep because so when they first got um, removed from me, I saw that they would, all the therapy, you know, like it, it triggered me from when I was younger and it did to me, but they do these therapy things with them and they were so little that they can't talk so they can't interview them. So they just went 
do a lot of little therapy with like balls and stuff, but it made them like feel like there was something wrong with them, right? So they would start telling me why there was a person always there and why they were asked so many questions and why um, was there always someone writing something down and getting my mom, which is their grandma, upset. And they're little, so I'm not knowing what to say, you know? It's hard for me. So all I could tell them is it's so they could stay with my mom. And and if I knew better, I probably wouldn't even said that because that would put fear in them too. Like, if they don't answer, they could get taken, you know? <laughs> but I didn't know what to say at the moment. So from from what I've known, the system did not treat my children well. Um, but I'm grateful that they were with my mom, so they've been treated better than they would have in other people's hands. I can't say that. One hundred percent, a hundred percent. So with that feeling of like people being surveilled, people being around, writing things down, how do you feel like your children's sense of self has been affected or impacted by that? My five-year-old is the one that got affected a little bit more in the sense of him questioning himself. Mm -hmm. Um, He asks a lot of questions himself and he always feels like there's something wrong. And when he was younger with me, he never felt that way. So I started asking my mom, is it because of those therapies? Is it because these ladies keep asking him things that he always feels like he's wrong? Or is it how they're treating him with my mom? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it? Is it you guys or is it them, you know? And my mom, yeah. um, how she parented me, I never really had her, so I'm, I, I didn't want to blame her either because I'm trying to mend my relationship with her. So she would mm-hmm. tell me, and from what she's told me, I feel that he questions himself so much because he doesn't know how to answer certain questions, and, and then he gets confused. And, and I just feel like when they're really, really young, mm-hmm. whether it be under five, depending on, on, on the language that they have, it's not fair to, like, Certain, mm-hmm. ask certain questions that will make them question themselves because they don't even know yet. They don't know who they are, you know? Right. They're, like, discovering right. themselves. So it, it, it's interesting to see my six-year-old and then see my five-year-old, but then my six-year-old trying to protect them, too, because he went through that before them, you know? Right, and and him having this sense of, like, responsibility yeah. and, and worry, yeah. you know, for you and for the family. That's that's really deep for, uh, you said, six years old? Yeah, six. Whenever I see the kids in the visiting line, I always make sure to like get down to their level and say hi to them because it's like overstimulating for them. Like they're in these visiting rooms and in these like processing systems where like we're taking our shoes off. We're constantly like being asked and questioned and like assumed to be, you know, criminal. Yeah, it's like criminalizing them. That's a lot. Yeah. What do you feel like your kids would need in terms of healing? Honestly, I feel like they need to be heard more. I do my best to be on the phone with them and and I let them talk. I let them do the talking and I just listen to them and I engage with them. Like, you know, have you ever heard, I don't know if if you guys grew up like this, but this is the main thing I always tell everybody. Have you ever heard when they're in cultures, this is an adult conversation, um, Mm -hmm. they'll tell the kid in Spanish like, Vete, um, los adultos están hablando. Like, leave, the adults are talking, right? Right. But I feel like it should be backwards. Right? Right. I feel like if a kid comes because he's trying to get your attention, then you mm. stop your conversation and you 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 let them engage in your mm. conversation and you bring them up, you bring them in the conversation. And if it's not appropriate for them, then you change that. Mm. And you ask them what they want to talk about because obviously they yes. want your attention. Like, it's not about adults having a conversation mm. when a kid comes. Like, it's okay. That's your turn to stop that. It's your turn to to let them be heard mm. and not be like, leave, because adults are talking. No. I really feel like that's one of the worst things mm. that... I'm going to say us parents, because I'm a parent as well, and I don't feel like I'm better than we do to our children, you know? And and I just feel like that's what needs yeah. to be changed, because then they feel that 
every time someone's talking, then can I get involved? And then they don't have a voice, you know? Mm-hmm. You seem like you've been doing a lot of your inner work, like for your parenting to stay strong, even within this incarceration. Yeah. Shout out to you. Hmm. There's like kind of like a, a discourse right now around parenting and what it's like to shift like away from punishment yeah. instead of like shaming kids. Like say they drop a piece of glass, yeah. you know, and that's like dangerous. Right, because it's not their fault. Yeah, like they're experimenting different ways of like dealing with stuff like that. Have you seen anything in your parenting style that has echoed that? Yeah, okay, so it was really hard for me because I grew up in the system and I got out when I was 23 and started popping them out. Like It it was so new to me, you know, and then having them back to back was so interesting. So when they did something, not that it was wrong, and I know that it's interesting what I'm going to say because a lot of people are not going to really agree with me, but I do not believe in telling them right and wrong. Like, I believe in teaching them what, what's right and wrong in the sense of, like, for them to know what's good and bad for them in life, like, to, like not to harm other people, but not in the way of, like, this is bad and you shouldn't do this because, or in, in the word no. I, I've never agreed with that because when you start teaching them that, they start telling you no bad and then they start thinking that things are bad. And when they start thinking things are bad, then they close themselves off to other things. So when I started noticing that in them, I just said, look, and I, and I, I conversate with them. I put them in the corner. I do the corner a lot. But then I started having this sense of like, oh my God, am I putting my kids in solitary confinement? <laughs> because I've mm. been in solitary confinement. So I had like this sense mm. of like, oh my God, I should have put them in the corner. But I started putting them in the corner and sitting with them. And I either would give them a book or I'll sit there and one of them could talk to me. My six-year-old could talk to me about what he goes through and what he learned. Mm-hmm. My middle one will not. He will scream for he's persistent. He's, his persistency is out of this world. Like, I know this boy will do big things in life because he's so persistent and will cry for hours. But I let him. I let him because that's what he wants to do. And I tell him, when you're done, then you talk to me. I'm right here. And I sit right there next to him. I don't let him mm-hmm. do it by himself, but you're going to be in that corner until you tell me. What's, what's uh, going to be different next time, you know, or what did you learn? And then when he's done, he breathes, he cries, he kisses me, and he tells me I'm done, you know? And and each mm-hmm. one of my kids is different. So with my oldest, yes. he put himself in the corner. You know, he messed up, he puts himself in the corner, and he tells me, okay, mom, <laughs> this is me. what I did, you know? Yeah. yeah. I love that idea of, like, you letting your son fully cry and be like, okay, that's what he wants to do. That's how he wants to express himself. Because a lot of times I yes. hear parents say, stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. Yeah, and, that's not okay. Especially if you're right. a boy. Because sometimes them emotions, mm. they be in there. They got to come out, especially as a kid. Yeah, they do. And if they don't, then they're going to do it in other ways. And like my babies, one thing about my babies is I'm not proud of it, you know, but they did. And, and they did see a lot of violence with me when I first had them. And they were very yeah. little. They were one and two. And and I thought they wouldn't remember, but they do. And that that was not okay. Mm-hmm. And when I noticed that if I don't change every aspect of myself, especially in my violent side, then that's who they're going to become too. And I didn't want that. Mm. Yes, the breaking cycles. Yeah. Jackie, are you an abolitionist? Like, I think everybody should be, but I think a lot of people don't really know what that means. Like, I, I, I told one of the girls here, like, I'm an abolitionist. And she's like, what does that mean? Are you going to blow up the prison? <laughs> I was like, I did not. That's not what it means. <laughs> not exactly. I was like, but that would be great, you know? <laughs> so I became an abolitionist. At first, I as well did not know what it meant, right? So I came home at 23 with nothing to a rehab and didn't, wasn't with my, didn't have my mom, nobody. And all my girls were in here. So I realized that if I didn't do something with myself, my girls were going to come out to nothing too, and I didn't want them to suffer. So I just started meeting people, and it was the universe, honestly, but I started meeting different connections and nonprofits, and I said, okay, well, this is what they're missing, and 
I got frustrated with each and I'm possible because they didn't have what, what my girls needed, right? So then I realized years later, that instead of having a grudge towards them, why don't I do it myself, right? So through just supporting my girls and them coming out and me taking them into my own house, we started creating support for ourselves. And I met a lot of different women and another person, just like Richie, you know, that they started talking about abolition. And I was like, well, I've always agreed with reform, but because I thought that was the only option, you know? I really thought like, mm. okay, you get out or even if mm. bail is gone or whatever, you go to rehab, you know? Rehab is good because the girls will learn some stuff. Yeah, it never worked for me, you know? So I was like, okay, maybe groups, maybe healing process, but that's not all there is. Like, it's this place. Like, this place and its mentality, the community in here becomes a culture. And if this culture continues to exist, all these women will continue to come out broken. And that's a fact. Mm. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Like, we know what the system sees, a mother who, you know, deserves her kids to be taken away. But what do you see? Oh, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) Mm. Honestly, it's crazy because I look in the mirror every day and someone told me to do that and I chose not to for so long. But I see a strong woman. I see a woman that loves people more than herself and is learning to love herself. And, And I see a mother. I see a mother that loves her children, healing and... Aside from all the fights that I have, the biggest fight is myself right now. And I feel that I'm doing it. I'm proud of Mm. myself for the first time in my life. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you too, fam. Thank you. Wow. Is there anything else you want to say as a mom, especially someone who's been in the system since you were a kid? Oh, my God. I'm coming home soon in like three weeks. And like, I can't wait to go support all the other moms. (laughs) We got this. Yes. Coming out with the fire to support other mothers. That's you, Jackie. Thank you for being who you are. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for being on the show. Yeah, of course. Hey, we'll see you in freedom, Jackie. (laughs) When we get back, you'll hear our interview with Larry Hoover Jr. recorded on the day after the concert to free his father, Larry Hoover. Stay with us. Larry Hoover Jr., it is an absolute honor to have you in the studio with us for Abolition X today, man. Man, thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So this is the podcast where we bring prison abolition to the culture. Okay. You know, and we we marry the two. Um, So honestly, there's no better person for us to be speaking to than you, not to mention off of the back of arguably, you know, one of the largest moments in the campaign thus far. So I wanted to ask you, how did you feel last night at the Larry Hoover concert? Man, I, mm. I felt great. It was unreal. It was a lot getting it together. And, you know, we actually crossed the finish line and Execute. it happened and it was it was beautiful, you know? Executed. I was yeah. on top of the world. <laughs> you know, it's um it's so mm. dope because I was having a conversation with my big sister when I was on the way to the concert, just ruminating on what the outcome would be and the ways that this could impact and will impact, you know, the campaign for, obviously, first and foremost, your father, but in general, incarcerated people in America, you right. know? And um, it's very interesting to see this echelon, pinnacle of pop culture meet prison release. Right, yeah. right. You know what I'm saying? And th- y'all the first that I can think of that have done this. Now, probably in the 60s, there were like... You know, they would do concerts, Black Panther, Free Huey, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to free Huey. They had songs and things like that. But honestly, there's not a moment when black music, really music, gets much bigger than Kanye West meets Drake on one stage. 
You know what I'm saying? So I, I want to ask you, what do you hope for from this moment, from last night particularly? Well, definitely first and foremost, I'm trying to put the message out about my father. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not just all about my father, it's just that we've been fighting so hard for so long and they they slammed his name every time they mentioned his name. You know, I had I had an interview this morning and they introduced him as a murderer and what have you, and I had to correct him and let him know that even the case that he's dealing with right now, it's a non-violent mm-hmm. drug crime. But mm-hmm. they steady put him in the front of everybody as a murderer. Right. Funding was raised and it's gonna help organizations that deal in prison reform. It's gonna make funding for a whole bunch of organizations to keep doing the work that they do, along with us to be able to fight for my father and do the work that, you know, we're trying to do, you know? Yes, sir. You know, I was reading the press uh, release earlier about the concert, and I was excited to see that on the list of organizations is Uptown People's Law Center in Chicago. Y'all made a great choice with them. You know, actually a year ago, a friend of mine named Musa, shout out to Musa, who was sentenced to 25 years when he was 14. Okay. He, through collaboration with the Uptown People's Law Center, I was able to get his clemency Mm. petition in front of Governor J.B. Pritzker's desk. And he came home 12 years early. So Uptown People's Law Center, they do amazing work. Man, it's it's a, you know, we we all know people that live it and, and know it. You know, that it's, um, it's a lot of people that's not getting a fair shake in this world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And we can't turn our backs. We got to keep moving forward. Some people don't understand it until it's their loved ones. But, you know, we know that it's a lot of people not getting a fair shake and they need assistance. You know, people wind up in the law system trying to trying to provide. And it's mm-hmm. it's all it starts from poverty. You know what yes, I mean? Sir. And that's what puts us in this situation. You know what? It's way more than that with us. You know, I wanted to say it was that, but it's way more than that. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody needs assistance. It's more than poverty. We have to deal with cops that's just unjust and everything. So And generations upon generations of abuse, of trauma. Yeah, it's all Um, types of things. You know what's something that occurs to me often is that so many times in the trajectories of powerful figures in our community, I feel like the circumstances that exist often will mm-hmm. take an individual who has exceptional talent for organizing, for leadership, right. and you're in a situation where everybody's scratching for basic necessities and right. basic needs. Yeah. So you get an individual like your father, mm-hmm. like Larry Hoover Sr., or like Jeff Ford, yes. who are brilliant minds that rival the Kanye West and the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates as far as potential for organizing, putting things together, but they come from a different set of circumstances. Right, right. You know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about the circumstances that you come from and what your experience growing up was like, what your experience with your father was like growing up. Okay, well, my circumstances, they... You know, they weren't bad. I came from 79th Street, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, like, my true story on what changed my life and kept me from maybe doing a, going a different path, my best friend got killed when I was 16. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We was out there. He he dropped the five. To drop a five or drop the rakes refers to turning the Chicago gang signs upside down with one's hands as a display of disrespect. A guy pulled out a 
you know, went to wow. his trunk and he stood there because he said he wasn't scared. You know what I mean? Right. And I had mm -hmm. to decide at that point mm -hmm. that I want to react to that situation. And I had to think about the consequences and everything that came with it. And, you know what I mean? That right there kind of changed my life and pushed me in a different direction. You know? Wow. You know what I mean? That's what kind of guided me and changed me from trying to do one thing to to doing another thing. That's you know what right. I mean? Just kind of living life and enjoying being young and worrying about school. My father told me, don't worry about none of that. Man, just go to school. You know, right. I was trying to go to school to know how to run a business because mm -hmm. my father was saying we were going to have businesses and I needed to know how to run them. And then as far as my father, you know, I was always just going to the jail. But my father tried to make sure that, um, you know, it was always a good thing. I think times when I might have gotten in trouble or what have you, or he might have needed to drill me just because he was there and couldn't be at home, it was always a good experience. You know what I mean? Like, he made sure it was a happy experience, a, a loving experience. Mm -hmm. So he was doing the best he could to be a father from the situation he was in because if it's not for mothers and grandmothers in these situations, a lot of relationships are torn apart between the kid and their father. I could not really know my father mm -hmm. if it wasn't for um, my mother not making sure right. that I, my father was in my life. Mm -hmm. It was a great experience. I had to understand who he was because mm -hmm. I shied away from that because I didn't know who he was. And when I found out, I didn't know whether it was going to cause harm to me or it meant I could stick mm -hmm. my chest out. You know right. what I mean? And I was never one of the ones to run around sticking my chest out because of who my father was. A lot That's of people... I believe, love me for that, you know what I mean, for being humble and, and laid back, you know? Yes, sir. You know, something that you said was very interesting to me about your partner when you were 16 and how he dropped the five and the situation transpired. Right. Because I'm hyper aware of how although we exist in different tribes oftentimes, right. we are one tribe. Though. Yeah, you we know, are. It's like I like to look at the way that we are in comparison to the way that we are on the continent. You know, you right. look at Ghana and Nigeria. Now, Europeans drew lines between them to say these are Ghanaians and these are Nigerians. Right. But you got people of the same tribes that exist on both sides of the lines. Right. Although they may butt heads oftentimes because of white man-made lines, right. you know. I grow up under the five. Right. You know what I'm saying? And at this moment, I'm very involved with the freedom movement for Jeff Fort because right. Dr. Amina Matthews is yeah. very close to me. Dr. Amina Matthews is a violence intervention expert from the south side of Chicago who was featured in the 2009 award-winning documentary the Interrupters. She runs the nonprofit Pause for Peace, which is dedicated to using science-based strategies to break cycles of violence. And she is currently running for U.S. Congress. So when I'm sending money to Chief, it's to the Florence Admax, to the same place right. that your father is. And so it's like people would maybe oftentimes from the exterior be like, oh, try to put them against each other. Right. When it's like, hold on, you know what I mean? We really... In, in a lot of ways, are campaigning for justice, you know what I mean, for many of the same ideals. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. When they had a chance, when they had gave my father room to move around for a short amount of time and did a senior program that didn't last long, like him and Jeff used to sit and talk. You know, when my son asked them, do you have any friends here? He was saying that 
you know what I mean, Jeff was one of his friends, but he was trying to explain to him. Wow. So he would know that he wouldn't think about being getting into it with other people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though my father's who he is and Jeff is, you know, who he is and you are who you are. You know what I mean? It's all love. I'm, you know what I mean? I don't look at that. And that's what my father, that's what he does is bring people together. A lot of people know how the peace was made back in the 90s when he had contact with the world. You know what I mean? A lot of people respect the fact that he was about peace and about bringing people together. You know what I mean? It gets us nowhere to be tugging at each other and arguing about these lines, you know what I mean, that you were speaking of. The one thing that I've been learning is just we have to relearn and unlearn that's been taught to us to constantly be dropping people's signs. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like we often get that from the people that was older than us that made us think that that's the way we got to move because we exist, you know, in this neighborhood with these guys. So it's just natural for us to just drop the rakes. But it's like, why is we even doing that? You know what I mean? I had to think about that for myself because I'm like, wait, so many of my closest friends, the people that I love above everything have been the folks. Right. You know what I mean? But it was programmed into me to be dropping the rakes. Right. And I had to be like, hold on, why Why do I even do that yeah. out of fun? You know what I mean? What's yeah. the... You know yeah. What I mean? yeah. It takes growth to understand, you know what I mean, the, the problems and why not to do certain things that mm-hmm. you were doing. It takes the understanding that whatever organization you're from, like he said earlier, we all one tribe. It, it don't matter. I mean, you just... You just got some different beliefs, but our struggles are all the same. We just, we got to know that, you know? Because you grew up over here and I grew up over there. We dealing with the same enemies and everything. And we making our enemies beat each other when that's not really what our problem is. And we got to remember that so often those oppositions have been designed for us by the capitalist society, by the city of Chicago. Yeah. They, they orchestrated us to be against each other. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They would try to send letters from uh, Chairman Fred to Jeff Ford saying, I'm going to kill you and vice versa, you know? I'm, I mean, just the fact that we were in the projects and people wanted more just to be in the situations that we were in to live in a big, beautiful city and not have what we had, what the other people yeah, in the city around had. The you know what I mean? Like, Nobody wants right. to live a poor life mm-hmm. in a, you know what I mean, in a small apartment with generations of people. In a gorgeous I mean, city. So, it, it, I mean, it makes people tug at each other. And when they made mm-hmm. drugs, our, our economy, like, even though we're destroying our own community, but we want to live better lives. People, and where the drugs so, come from. Yeah, and they came from, that's, you know, part of the setup. Yeah, that, that's kind of what from. I That's kind of what I was getting at with uh-huh. that whole... That whole thing, just because of our design situations, mm. a lot of this stuff was calculated that why we're here, where we're at right now. You know, you know, Chicago is actually the largest public housing experiment in the nation. And I call it an experiment because when they designed public housing and they stack poor people on top of right. each other and restrict them from going and getting homes in other yeah. areas of the city. Yep. Um, it was clearly an experiment because once they once they did that, realized it wasn't working, right. they decided to halt the experiment, tear them down, and you get exponentially more violence after that. Yeah. I remember one time I was in prison, right? The way they designed the, the high security and maximum security California prisons is they literally design it with two sides. 
because in California, it's split by race. So you have blacks and Asians on one side and whites and Latinos on the other side. One time, there was a time when only black people were in a day room. Day room, the common area of a detention facility designated for leisure time. There was a CD player that had went missing off of one of the Latino cat's door. And of course, the Latinos, when they come out of their cells, they assume that one of the blacks took it. So their rep comes and talks to our rep. And the blacks is like, we didn't take your shit. So of course, they're, it, it, it's looking like it's going to go all bad. Niggas is going back, you know, getting knives. Like it's really about to go all bad. I got two strikes. I'm 20 years old. I'm shaking in my boots because mm. I'm like, it's about to be a riot. I'm either going to die or I'm going to hurt somebody else and get struck out. Um, and the minute before the first punch is thrown, literally as we're walking up to them and they're walking up to us, the cops come out with the CD player, two white cops, and just laugh and threw the CD player at the dude wow. they stole it from and eh, said, we just wanted to see if y'all would really do it. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you, what do you think about your father's potential to end and work against street violence? All right. And, and, in the 90s, you know what I mean? They did United in Peace, and they had the troops. And that was bringing all the different organizations in the city together, you know what I mean, to just stop all the violence. You know what I mean? If you were to do something that would cause violence to cause harm to the peace that was going on, you couldn't go back home to your own home because this is what we were doing and it was safe for the children, it was safe for the grandmothers and the mm. mothers. You know what I mean? It was, it's always about, you know, having a, a, a community where you can live in and feel comfortable. Nobody likes to be uncomfortable in their own community. Mm. You know what I mean? He he was said on the Ghetto Boys years ago, it's going to be like Warsaw in our own communities. And right now at home in Chicago, it kind of feels that way. From what they say about L.A., mm. it kind of it kind of feels so that, feel way. that way. But his thing yeah. was always, you know, just, just bringing the people together. And I believe that, you know, he has a voice. A lot of people love and trust his opinion. You know, I think he can get a lot of people back into the fight to put the work in to, you know, grab their kids and, and their nephews and, mm -hmm. you know, just, just get people all back into the process of changing the narrative, changing mm -hmm. the outlook for the youth, you know what I mean? Directing them and guiding them, you know? Yeah, so intergenerational wisdom are the words that comes to my mind, you know, because being in Chicago yeah. and what we experience is that there are no OGs. There's no big homies. And a friend said to me the other day about the word OG. OG, original gangster. Once used to identify the original member of a gang. Now, mostly used as a term of endearment for someone who is older, wise, authentic, or old school. OG, that's a real term of respect and endearment yeah. in our community. You know, right. to be an OG, when somebody considers mm -hmm. you an OG, and Chicago suffers from a real lack of OG involvement. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. there's no checks and balances. It's a different way. Structures were broken and torn down. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And without that structure, that gap in between the, the youth and who were the OGs, you know right. what I mean? It's the respect is not there like it's supposed to be. Right. You know what I mean? As, as fathers that didn't do their job, the guys from the street were taken off the street. You know what I mean? And the government mm -hmm. claimed that they did these type of things to make the street better, but it made the streets worse. You know what I mean? The, the youth are kind of running wild. It's not even 
You know, the guys yeah. aren't tied together as far as even this line and that line. Of course. It's this block and yeah, it's that yeah. block. Renegade, insane, everybody yeah, pitted yeah, against so, each other. I wanted to ask, like, you guys were saying how gang violence in your cities, it feels like war. What were some of the cues that you had as a child to know that there was something that you were privy to, even if you didn't know what it was exactly, or it seems like your father did his best to kind of like still keep a positive interactions with you all. But what were some cues that you got that there was trouble in the community? A lot of people died. You know, like I knew so many people, you know, that were murdered in the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, that God, was, you know, that was that? a sign. That probably started from, I want to say like a freshman to, you know, by the time I got out of high school, it was, mm. it was, it was so many people that had died that I knew that had died already. I don't know that everybody knew this many people that, that died like that. It is, you know, sometimes I think about it like, that's not right. I shouldn't know this many people mm. that, you know what I mean, have been right. killed. I kind of wanted to ask about um, what communication with your father in more recent times has been like what barriers there have been. Because in my conversations with Amina, mm-hmm. I learned that they withhold in commissary. Yeah. You know what I mean? That they're making lawyer visits difficult. Well, you know, the ADX is made to silence a person and is made to drive a person crazy. Mm. Admax, United States Penitentiary, Administrative Maximum Facility. It is a federal prison located in Florence, Colorado, with more surveillance than a maximum security prison. People are confined to single cells for 23 hours a day. Some are not allowed visits from other people, including their attorneys and family members. It's the top federal prison in Colorado, and it's it's underground. You know what I mean? And they take all of the terrorists and supposedly super dangerous people that are people that attack guards and won't stop attacking other inmates, the, the the inmates that are murderers, you know, and their whole thing is to make sure that he is silenced. He he should have broke by now. That's what they expect to happen to a person when he's, when you're in there that long, when you're living in a box in a six by eight with mm-hmm. concrete bed and, you know, steel toilet and a little shower in the corner. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. that's the type of life that he's living for a nonviolent drug crime. And anytime his name is mentioned, the prosecutor comes out and speaks of he needs to stay there. And they describe him as a, a murderer when murder has nothing to do with the reason he's in the ADX. You know what I mean? The judge said that he didn't know he was going to the ADX. He he wouldn't have sent him to the ADX if he had something to do with it. All of the other guys that were involved in his situation, they didn't go to the ADX. They went to other federal prisons, but they wanted to make sure, knowing that he's the leader that he is, they didn't want him to be able to influence anybody for anything. They looked past his influence as a positive influence and made it into a negative influence, but all of our leaders that can bring our people together are pretty much looked at negatively, you know? And I think mm-hmm. historically it's important to remember that although America loves to canonize Martin Luther King and also we do Malcolm X, you know, when Martin Luther King was alive, 70% of the nation viewed him as one of the biggest threats right. to America. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? He was basically considered a terrorist. Right. To this Radical day, Malcolm Radical. X's name is used 
as a terrorist. Because one thing I think that we, uh, that I, I know we strive to do with this show and with this conversation is reframe the narrative that's been given. Because even our people will buy a right. lot of these narratives that they give, you know, and they portray our leaders like a Larry Hoover or like a Malcolm X as being these insane, dangerous figures when that's the way they played Martin Luther uh, King. Right, right. What? And, what does Larry Hoover think about street violence, like, now? I mean, he, he can't understand what's going on. I mean, he watches the news, and he's like, wow, what is going on, and why can't it, why can't, why they can't get this together? And how did mm-hmm. it get to this point, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. man, he's horrified by the, by the stuff that he hears, you know, with the information that he gets through whatever channels of TV they let them have, he's like, wow, I can't believe it. You know, it, it hurts them to know that this, this is what's going on in our city. Yeah. Even on top of that, he gets the blame for a lot of things that go on in our city. And they know that he can't even communicate with the world. But, mm-hmm. you know, back to what you were saying, also the fact of what they do there, they monitor and they control all of your your phone calls and you know, if yeah. you say the wrong things, they might come and tell you that you can't talk about that. You know, we it's a, it's a hard time telling them. My father's 71. If we tell him about some of his friends that might have passed or something because, you know, they're up in age. You know, don't talk. They don't talk about that. That's gang talk. When we talk about the book, Growth and Development, because that's what he wanted to get back to the world because that's his message to the world. Mm. You know, they say that it's, a, it's gang literature. And anyone that reads that book has the understanding that this is a book, a guideline to change your life from the streets and negative energy to become a part of society. Yeah, I you know what I mean? Brilliant. And, you know, that's like, that's considered gang talk. We, I think we would put on restrictions for talking about this book and trying to get it back to the world because that should be his legacy of who he is and what he was trying to do. You know, what's wild is that um, in the same breath, Malcolm X autobiography is banned in a lot of prisons. Oh, wow. Like, there's so many, yeah. but there's simple things like Ta-Nehisi Coates, like, not even revolutionary stuff. Right. That's like, Spook Who Sat By The Door, that's banned all through the prisons. The, the list of banned books yeah. in prisons mm-hmm. is deep. So it's not surprising that they would take a document that's as positive as the one you're speaking about, which I've, I've read through it, and I'm like, right. you know, this is a... It, it's very constructive. You right. know what I'm saying? It's from Gangster Disciple to Growth and Development. And my father did that off of his life because he felt like illiteracy was the thing that helped lead him to the streets. You mm. know what I mean? He was he was mm. dyslexic. Wow. You know, so in school he had a hard time. So when people used to give him a hard time about not doing good in school, then he mm. would fight. And, you know, finally he stopped dealing with the whole school situation, but... That's what led him to the streets. So he wrote this book because once he learned how to read, you know what I mean, on top of just his charisma and natural abilities, he found out that he can do anything and learn how to do anything. You know what I mean? A lot of people like, man, he's brilliant, but he basically was a student that, you know what I mean, that just taught himself. And he felt like if he was dyslexic and he could teach himself, Everybody could learn, and illiteracy is just part of the problem of what's going on for us in our community. And so he was just trying to 
You know what I mean? He was just trying to drop some gems, mm. right. you know what I mean, off of his life and what changed his life and what he feels like could help other people change their life to come from the same type of situation that he came from. Like, what do you think, Larry, the impact of your father coming home, mm-hmm. like him walking free and him having the philosophies and the ideas that he does have around, you know, growth and development as opposed to being an active gang member? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think that would do for the streets, even the symbolism of him coming home, having the mentality that he has? I mean, it's just a, a respect thing. The the respect that people have for him and the ideology that he carries, it'll pass on to people. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. It'll put, I think it'll actually get people to kind of want to do the right thing. When they get an understanding from people that have been there that understands, he said a long time ago, I understand you because you are who I am and you are going to be where I am. I mean, he's been in jail for 48 years. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff <laughs> that he tells me about before he was incarcerated is like, wow. So he really understands what's going on and, you know, what the youth yeah. are going through. Mm-hmm. There's no one person that's go mm-hmm. fix Chicago or any city. You know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's always yes. going to take more, you know. Yes. We have to, you know what I mean, work with our youth so they not influenced to go in the wrong yeah. direction. You know what I mean? With the with the little kids. So right. they can get that understanding as babies. Yeah. Like, don't look up to the negativity and the nonsense. There's no need for you to go be a part of something that could ruin your life. Yeah, I pretty much am always focused on, you know, the the youth, youth right. as it pertains to impacting the violence in Chicago right. because it's so cyclical and, yeah. you know, so much of what exists now is like, it's a conundrum because it's <laughs> revenge. Yeah, you know what I mean? This yeah. cycle of revenge that's so hard to break once you've entered it. When you're talking right. about being in high school and right. how we all exist, having lost so many people, right. and then especially when you in the mix of those things right. and you 18 years old right. and you got 10 names tattooed on you of people that you was in a sandbox right. with, you know, mm. and now your life is in pursuit of their revenge. Yeah. Hmm. And I always say, for one, my father always tell me that wars are stopped by just understanding sometimes. Some people can say that um, enough people have died, let's move forward because as far as in the street, it's just going to be L's. Like, your friends Hmm. have died, there's no need for you to have to have to die or go spend the rest of your life in prison because they're not here. Let's try living life for them instead of you know, giving Dying your life in that situation, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's game. That's game. Period. So, I mean, you've been kicking so much game, man. I heard you got a podcast that you're working on. Oh, so. man, this, this podcast is on Breakbeat. It's a podcast on my father, and it's just mm-hmm. giving some real information of who he is because all the information that has been put out there, for the most part, is from the narrative of the media, the FBI, they just want to keep slandering them. Mm-hmm. So we can actually give the story where you can find out about growth and development, 21st century vote. A lot of the people that he changed, he actually changed their lives. They got out of jail. They went to jail as GD crazy and left jail as growth and development and start companies and, you know what I mean, oh. work jobs and get back into society. It's crazy, though, with that to think that 
I meet a lot of people that actually lived with my father. I had to think about it like, do they know my father better than me? Because they mm-hmm. actually lived with him day in and day out. And it's it's kind of wild. In the yeah, yeah, it's kind of wild to think that I meet people that actually lived with my father. And I never right. lived with my father. Right. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. Your father is a remarkable leader in a positive way to be able to influence a peace treaty from jail in the streets of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And we pray him for his freedom, not only for what it can do for the peace of Chicago, but just for your peace, for just mm-hmm. to be a, the family man that he is and to be able to be back in y'all lives in person. Y'all are fighting a hard fight. And we appreciate you sharing that with us today. Oh, man, I'm, uh, I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to... You know, to put this word out here to spread the information, man. This this platform that's been given to me is like I could have never expected it. You know what I mean? I never knew that I would be in mm. in this situation to, mm. you know what I mean, advocate for my father to the world. And we go make sure that we get to other people so it's just not a biased point of view. Other people that get their um information about, you know, my father and who he is. And continue mm. this movement from the free world. Yes. Yes, okay. sir. Yes, sir. In that order. Larry Hoover Jr. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank y'all so much. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to this episode. We want to thank Larry Hoover Jr. and Jackie for being part of these conversations. It's clear that family is at the foundation of how we make abolition work. Before you go, make sure to check out our show notes for this episode. There you can learn more about Larry's work. Check out the free Larry Hoover concert by Drake and Kanye in our show notes. You'll also find a link to the Who Pays report by the Ella Baker Center, which I worked on that report. And big shout out to Azadeh. Also, check out Vic's song Musa off his project, The Eye Tape. Make sure you hit that follow button so you can never miss an episode. Abolition X is a Spotify original podcast. Our creative producers are Miguel Contreras, Candice Manriquez-Ren, Courtney Gilbert, and Brandon Sharp. Our executive producers are Gina Delvac and Corinne Gilliard. Editing by Miguel Contreras and Michael Hardman. Sound design and mixing by Michael Hardman. Original music by Indigo Mateo, Vic Mensa, Richie Reseda, and April Kay. Special thanks to Leslie Guam, Robert Adler, Casey Simonson, and Hugo Salguero. Our voiceover artist is Tara Cease. We're your hosts, Indigo Mateo, Richie Reseda, and Vic Mensa. Make sure to follow Abolition X only on Spotify. Not Vic in the studio and us at home. This shit is weird. <laughs> this shit is so dumb. You can't write this shit. I swear.